Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, and also welcome to DHMC's uh, Transplant Infectious Disease Intensive Summit. Rich Zuckerman is the program director of that, and I'll bring him here in a moment to introduce today's speaker, Jay Fishman. There are no conflicts of interest to declare for this discussion. Rich is an associate professor in the section of infectious disease here in our Department of Medicine. And come tell us about today's speaker. Thanks, Rich. Um, so before I uh, introduce Jay, I just want to um, thank everyone for coming and uh, welcome those who are here for the Transplant Infectious Disease uh, Intensive uh, Summit for ID Practitioners. It's a, it's a mouthful. Um, I'd like to also thank, uh, uh, thank some of our other speakers, Helen Boucher and Ajit LeMay, for coming. We'll be talking a little bit later. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have Jay here. Um, uh, Jay uh, started, had medical school in, um, at Johns Hopkins and moved soon thereafter to uh, Harvard, at where he's been ever since. He has been uh, essentially a pioneer in um, transplant infectious disease. He's really uh, one of the people who started the specialty and has really spent a lot of time coalescing it into what it is today. Uh, he has bridged the gaps between the transplanters and the medicine folks. He has been uh, president of the American Society of Transplantation, and as an infectious disease doc, that's a, that's a big thing. He has um, he's put together communities of practice to do practice guidelines, and really, you know, has has uh, forwarded the care of transplant patients uh, in his time uh, doing this. And it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have him here to talk about transplant infections, and uh, and to be here. On a side note, he does uh, have one, we always try to find a small connection to Dartmouth when anybody's here, <laughs> because we are that, you know, we bleed green, I guess, is what everybody says. But uh, Jay's wife uh, worked at the old Mary Hitchcock Hospital uh, years ago, so uh, there, he, uh, he brought her up here with him, and they're, they're happy to be here. So uh, without further ado, I, I welcome Jay, and thanks a lot for Thanks very much, Rich, for that very generous introduction. Um, I was charged by him uh, to cover all of transplant infectious disease in solid organs and in stem cells, to cover all of the various agents and complications, uh, and to leave time for questions. So <laughs> in the next six hours, um, I'm going to try to cover a somewhat practical approach to this particular group of very interesting immunocompromised hosts. Um, and what we are going to see over time and what we've seen in my lifetime is that we have moved from an era where graft rejection was the most pressing problem or graft versus host disease into very good immunosuppressive regimens where we're seeing atypical presentations of graft rejection and at the same time we're seeing many, many more infections as a result of the intensive immunosuppression uh, we administer. We are giving prophylactic regimens, and as most of you know, they're coming back to haunt us in the form of antimicrobial resistance. We have changed the way we manage patients by the integration of molecular and other diagnostic tests into our routine management paradigms. 
And yet, all of us are dealing with critically ill patients on a routine basis. And I thought I'd give you an example of the complexity of these patients. A 63-year-old man had his second renal transplant for diabetes, had some problems with early humoral antibody-mediated graft rejection. Baseline creatinine is about 2.2. And he has this chronically non-healing skin ulcer on his wrist. He has an AV graft on the other side. And the swab from that site is growing Staph aureus. He's had multiple courses of antibiotics in the interim. And what does he have? Well, does he have an ischemic ulcer and steel from the AV graft? There may be a contribution of that. Does he have resistant staphylococcus infection? Turns out he didn't. Does he have something unusual like fusarium? No. But in fact, on biopsy, he does have no cardiac. And does he have rapamycin induced poor wound healing? And probably that's a component. And so what we're seeing here is somebody where we tie off the AV graft, we switch his immunosuppression from rapamycin to a calcineurin-based regimen, and we treat him for nocardia that it gets healed up rather quickly. At the same time, we see something like this in clinic, a phaohyphomycosis, which requires completely different therapy uh, than did this particular ulcer, but in a similar location. So this is the take-home message after which you can all go back to sleep, which is Jay says biopsy early and often make specific diagnoses, and that is really the key to management in these individuals. Why is that? It's because these patients are complicated. It's because they have diminished signs of inflammation due to the exogenous immunosuppression we give, multiple simultaneous processes is the rule in these individuals. Infection is often advanced or disseminated at the time of presentation. So if you see somebody with no cardia in their wrist, they're also likely to have it in their central nervous system or their lungs. Antimicrobial resistance is common in part due to prophylactic regimens we use. All of our drugs have toxic side effects and drug interactions are common. And all of our patients have anatomic and surgical alterations. They're all largely surgical patients. So as a result, we are highly dependent on demonstration of anatomy, CT scanning, MRI scanning, tissue histology, as I've already said, biopsies and cultures, demonstration of nucleic acids or proteins in our microbiologic assays, because antibody-based assays often don't convert. They don't become positive in a timely enough fashion for us to use for diagnosis and early therapy. And then early and aggressive therapy, including surgical therapy and debridement, which means working closely with our surgical colleagues to try to get resolution because our antibiotics are not the wonder drugs we like to think that they are. How important is infection in this population? Well, in the solid organ population, pneumonia, four times as common, sepsis, highly uh, increased high mortality, decreased quality of life. And really what we're trying to do, not just in this era, but in every era, is get people out of the hospital to successful and healthy lives. So the reality is, is the more time they spend being sick, the less well we've done our own jobs. We're also starting to see newer pathogens in transplantation. Those of you who take care to any degree of HIV-infected individuals, patients with chronic T cell deficiencies, other chronic immunodeficiencies, will recognize a lot of these organisms as the result of prolonged immune deficiency. Rhodococcus, 
hospital colonization with VRE and MRSA, unusual fungi, some viruses that you had never heard of until about 10 years ago, a variety of parasites, all a reflection of what we've done to their immune system. Why is that? Well, in fact, in the last 20 years, a lot of this has prolonged patient survival. Our surgical techniques and our immunosuppressive techniques are much better than they used to be. Our patients are doing better, and our donors and recipients are coming from a broader geographic background. They're traveling. They're going back to work. They're doing a variety of things. This would be considered a success uh, without those epidemiologic exposures. We have, as clinicians, shifted the nosocomial flora so that we're seeing more resistance, more unusual pathogens with routine prophylaxis and the use and abuse of antimicrobial agents. And the importance of antimicrobial stewardship is nowhere more important than in this particular patient population. I've already mentioned the impact of intensified immunosuppression. And in fact, we're making diagnoses more often. So we're seeing these unusual pathogens as a result of improved microbiologic techniques. And just to put this in a context, with the new high-throughput sequencing methods, the metagenomics of the modern era, we are able to start thinking about pathogens that we can't grow in culture, that are resistant to early and easy diagnosis using some of the modern molecular techniques. So it's worth thinking about this as a research enterprise as well. Okay. As for any of our patients, the risk of infection is this semi-quantitative relationship between epidemiologic exposures, what they see, including those from the graft and latent infections, and this conceptual framework first crafted by one of my teachers, Bob Rubin, called the net state of immunosuppression, which is really the summation of all of the potential factors that go into making a patient more susceptible to opportunistic infection. I'll come back to that in one second. What about the epidemiologic exposures? Well, the easiest division for these is recent and not so recent. And certainly in terms of recent, in, ter in terms of a surgical patient, we're talking about nosocomial flora as a major driver and donor-derived or infections that come with the donor organ or cells or tissues. Certainly, there are catheter-related sepsis and complex surgical uh, problems and others. But those are the main drivers in terms of recent epidemiologic exposures. And I'll show you why that's important in a second. In terms of distant exposures, and I've already mentioned that we're seeing a broader socioeconomic and geographic background for all of our patients. Diseases such as strongyloiditis, such as tuberculosis, such as Leishmaniasis. Just some of my alien clinic. Come back to haunt us many years later, and I've had patients with strongyloides emerge 40 years after their original exposure. Think about our soldiers who worked in Southeast Asia. Uh, and certainly new epidemiologic exposures that we don't know quite how to uh, handle. When I was in Italy, um, they just saw just another patient with chikungunya virus, um, something that uh, even in Boston we haven't seen a lot of um, and has made the CDC uh, hot list recently. So new outbreaks affecting our patients more, and I would say of that group 
perhaps influenza that we see in our patients in September, October, and we might see in our general patient population in January, February. So as sentinels for infection occurring in those individuals. Of course, the nature of the immune defect is critical to the importance of the epidemiologic exposure. And this is true in all patient groups. So if you have a neutropenic patient, it's more likely to be endogenous flora or nosocomial flora that are going to cause those infection, and perhaps more often bacteria or fungal than viral. In the T cell defects in transplantation, and those with graft-versus-host disease, it's more often to be a viral infection. And then we've got our patients with splenectomies and diabetes and other uh, defects. And for each of those, we think of potentially a greater risk for one or another type of infection. Now, I mentioned the net state of immune suppression, which is this conceptual framework that we use to think about our patients. The most important driver for this is, of course, what we do to their immune system, but not just what immunosuppression they're taking now, but if you will, an area under the curve of immunosuppression. The sequence becomes very important. So for example, if we give corticosteroids as a bolus, we're more likely to activate bacterial infections. If we give T cell depletion and then give calcineurin inhibitors, we activate, for example, cytomegalovirus with our T cell depletion and then sustain that infection with the calcineurin inhibitors so that there is this additive effect over time. So that's the immunosuppressive therapy. In addition to that, in each of our patients, we do all kinds of things. We give them chemotherapy. We give them antimicrobials. We leave our lines and catheters in too long. We make them neutropenic with our drugs. We ignore the fact that they're cirrhotics or they have other underlying immune deficiencies. And if you put all of that together, that's their net state of immune suppression. So you have to do that summation in your head to think about the risk of an individual. Now, when I taught immunology in college, this is what the immune system looked like. And there were a couple of rules. First of all, there were only four types of cells. And the rule was they didn't talk to each other. Okay, So it was really immunology was pretty easy uh, at that time. But that's still a valuable concept in terms of thinking about immune deficits, because it is the absence or dysfunction of any one of those cell types that predict most of what we're dealing with in our patient population. And Jerry Bodie at that time had done a variety of studies to show that if you just look at neutropenia, that the duration and depth of neutropenia was a predictor of risk for infection. So the longer our patients sit there with a low white blood cell count, the more likely they are to have some sort of infection. And this is not just in our oncology or stem cell population. It applies to all of our patients. And as an example, a consult we did a couple of years ago on a 30-year-old woman who had a second liver transplant initially for hepatitis B and chronic graft rejection. Technically, everything went well. Day seven, postoperatively, she developed tachycardia, hypotension, fever, tachypnea, and increased oxygen requirement. And the chest x-ray was reported as clear. And I included this because she had her transplant done uh, on day zero. Day five of neutropenia uh, was here, and we were called on day seven. Uh, of course, the tachycardia also started back here, um, but better late than never, I suppose. 
what do you do? Well, the nice thing is we have all kinds of antibiotics we can throw at her. So vancomycin and cefepime, metronidazole, should we get a chest CT? Do we do bronch? Do we start antifungal therapy? Um, wait till the end of the lecture and I'll let you know. Uh, the reality is, is that, as I mentioned before, you need to know what you're dealing with. So as I said, right-sided effusion, as all of our liver transplant recipients will have, otherwise clear, her white count had been 0.2 or lower. CT scan shown here shows bilateral nodules and a wedge-shaped opacity. But I was told it couldn't be aspergillus because her serum galactomannan assay was negative. Um, and in fact, we've published fairly recently Galactomannan doesn't work well in solid organ transplant patients, and it doesn't work so great in anybody else either. Um, but you can use it. It only costs $400 each. Uh, we had to spend $28,000 to get a useful one at Mass General. I'm sure you'll do better here. Um, we did do bronchoscopy. We did start empiric antifungal therapy. And then the aspergillus grew out around day seven. So that clinical judgment is still a very valuable asset here. You've got to do what makes sense in these individuals. But the real question is, why did she get this infection? Well, she's sick. She's more immunocompromised than just her immune suppression would suggest. Second transplant, major operation, prolonged nosocomial exposures, background colonization probably, and she's neutropenic. So all of those factors going in to treating her. Okay, unfortunately, since I went to college, this is now what immunology looks like in part, and there are subsets of all of these various cell types. And they talk to each other. So what do we do to our immune system, and what's the impact on risk of infection? So corticosteroids, obviously we use a lot less of them now than we used to. What's the downside of using corticosteroids? Well, they, the upside is it works really well on the cytokines and the communication between these cells. The downside is poor wound healing, of course, bacterial infections, pneumocystis infections, and accelerated viral infections, amongst others. What's the mechanism of action? Well, diminished inflammation. Diminished mobilization of cells. So you have somebody on steroids, and you say, oh, look, their hepatitis is better. Their hepatitis isn't better. They have fewer white cells in their liver. They have less inflammation. So that coordination of cells that I just talked about is blocked. What do we do in terms of immunosuppression then for our transplant patients? Well, we deplete their T cells. So uh, lymphocyte depletion we usually refer to as induction therapy, which predisposes to viral infection, uh, gives cytokine release in itself, so you get fever with the T cell depletion. We do B cell depletion and co-stimulatory blockade. And it looks like this on your T cell surface. And not to belabor this, we have T cell depletion targeting the T cell receptor and the synapse between the class one T-cell receptor and the co-stimulatory system. We have corticosteroids that block at the same sites, ultimately, where the calcineurin inhibitor is going to block. We have the cell cycle inhibitors, mycophenolate mofetil over azathioprine now, which blocks the production of cells. 
as well as the cytokine signaling cascade. We certainly have tacrolimus and cyclosporin, which are our, our calcineurin inhibitors, and block the activation of T cells. I'll go through all of this in a second, and the anti-IL-2 receptors um, and the target of rapamycin serolimus. What do all of these do? Well, let's go through them just briefly. So if we diminish B cell function using plasmapheresis, anti-CD20 antibody, trade name rituximab, mycophenolate mofetil, the calcineurin inhibitors, we have a lot of ways now because of humoral graft rejection to deplete the B cell response. What happens when we do that? We see a lot more bacterial infections. We see pneumocystis. We see respiratory viral infections. What about the CD4T lymphocyte functions? Well, we have got lots of agents, as I've mentioned, in terms of blocking T cell function, which is required for responses to primarily viral infections and then as adaptive memory to all types of infections. So the expectation is that when we block CD4T lymphocyte function, they're going to look a lot like our HIV patients. How about the CD8 functions? Well, this is primarily responsive responsible for antiviral activity, for anticellular activity. And again, we have a lot of cells expressing microbial antigens, intracellular pathogens, viruses, that the CD8 depletion will affect. The target of rapamycin, serolimus, everolimus now. What happens when we give these agents? Well, certainly the, uh, the negative impact of the calcineurin inhibitors which are pre-renal vasoconstrictors, is less. Our kidney function is better. At the same time, we start seeing poor wound healing. We start seeing proteinuria, portal vein thrombosis, which is why there's a black box warning for their use early after liver transplantation. Proteinuria, as I've mentioned, and an idiosyncratic picture of pneumonitis that looks for all the world like influenza. So that if somebody comes in with respiratory difficulties on rapamycin, you need to think about the fact that either rapamycin caused or contributed to that particular syndrome. And so we've got this array of immunosuppressive agents that are used in all of the different transplant patients and drive the risk. We have a lot of antibodies now that are used for T cell and B cell modulation, as I've mentioned. I mention them not because you need to know them or that they're going to be on the exam at the end of my talk. I mention them because the effects of these were always thought, when we started using them, to be short-lived. You get rid of the T cells, they came back in two or three weeks, life was good. It turns out that the effect on T cells is sustained that you treat somebody with T cell depletion and then three months, six months, or in this particular study, 60 months later, their T cell function is not normal. So in the back of your mind, you have to start saying, gee, the effect of this therapy is greater. Alemtuzumab, trade name Campath, similar effect. Broader T cell depletion, but also NK cells and B cells. So the immune deficits and therefore the opportunistic infections are sustained six weeks, six months, a year after therapy uh, with those. And so that we start seeing diminished T cell function, dendritic cell function as well. Now, a lot of you say, 
what if I don't see transplant patients? Well, you probably see patients. And there are very few patient classes now that are not getting some immune modulators and biotherapy that are having exactly the same effects. And remember, I said one of the nice things about steroids is they block intracellular communication. Well, a lot of these target cytokines. They target other immune effectors, tumor necrosis factor in particular. And so many of the same effects that we're seeing in terms of activation of latent infections, those warnings about tuberculosis, histoplasmosis, and the like, apply to your patients even if you're not seeing transplant patients on a routine basis. So tumor necrosis factor, fourfold increase in hospitalization in the first six months, and a broad range of fungal activations. Tysabri, uh, as you remember, the association with progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, JC virus infection uh, after in that series uh, for um, various applications, including Crohn's disease. So the average person would then say, well, let's measure the immune function and figure out how much at risk our individual patient might be, which is a great idea, except we don't have those tools. And so the reality is we're guesstimating in each of our patients how immune deficient they are and what their risk is. And I'll show you a couple of my favorite patients before we get to the end. But you have to know your patients, and there are patients who you will see once every two or three years, and there's patients you'll see every two or three weeks, and they'll have your cell phone and email uh, and the like. Okay, so you take all of these factors, the epidemiologic exposures, the immune defects, and you put them together, and you say, well, on average, what do our patients get, and when do they get them? Because it's useful to have a way of approaching these patients. And so we put together a timeline from the time of transplantation and break it up into an early period, an intermediate period, and a longer term period. Intuitively, the risk of opportunistic infection you would think is when they have the most drug going in, that first four weeks. Turns out not to be the case. And it's not the case largely because it takes a while for these drugs to kick in. It takes a while for them to exert their full effects. So it's three or four weeks before we start really seeing the opportunistic infections that we think of in the immunocompromised host. In the early period, the driver in this particular timeline with solid organ transplants, we'll come to the stem cells in a moment, is exposure to nosocomial pathogen or pre-existing infections from the donor or recipient. And not only do those haunt you early after transplant, but the colonization that occurs, that little construction project that you've got out front spewing aspergillus over us as we walk into the hospital. <laughs> We've got them too, don't worry. Um, colonization with MRSA and VRE and aspergillus and the like comes back to haunt you when you treat that person later on in life for graft rejection and you re-immunosuppress them. There are many different regimens. Certainly, that those regimens are adapted to our patients. The one take-home message is when we start to treat for rejection, we reset the clock. Their risk goes up again. It's not this low maintenance level. But after about four weeks, we start seeing the opportunistic infections that we think of, the pneumocystis, the toxoplasmosis, the cytomegalovirus, and others 
that we think of as classic opportunistic infections. And those are the pathogens that drive our prophylactic regimens. So that we know that patients for the first three or six months are highly susceptible to certain population. And that by the deployment of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and antiviral agents, we can prevent or delay those until after our immunosuppressive regimen has been downgraded to some extent. Okay, so in general, we deploy prophylactic regimens around the time of surgery for pneumocystis and for cytomegalovirus. And the trimethoprim sulfa regimen has advantages over any other regimen, particularly given daily, for the prevention of bacterial infections, including listeria, nocardia, uh, and the like, um, and so that we often have our patients on these for at least six months or to li for life, and those are the reason why. And certainly, cytomegalovirus prophylaxis has changed the way we manage our patients in general. What about bone marrow, stem cell, chemotherapy patients? Well, you notice the timeline is, looks pretty much the same. Uh, that's because I'm limited in my artistic skills, but it's also because it's not really different. So early on, the main drivers are not the surgical exposures, but neutropenia. So the duration of neutropenia is the main driver for the early nosocomial pre-engraftment infections. And it's not until three or four weeks where we start seeing the opportunistic infections that I just mentioned previously. And then the main driver afterwards is the treatment of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. So if they don't have graft-versus-host disease, you can downgrade their immunosuppression and their risk for opportunistic infection is less. Now, of course, there's greater variability in this patient population because the engraftment uh, and regimens are more variable. But the central role of neutropenia and graft-versus-host disease is pretty much the unifying feature. And some of those opportunistic infections can occur at any time because we need the specificity of the T cell response, and there are often gaps in that T cell repertoire. So you'll find individual patients who have recurrent viral infections and others who have none at all. And that's because of the nature of the engraftment syndrome. Now, stem cell transplantation has changed over the last 10 or 15 years. Remember, what we used to have was a lot of veno-occlusive disease, a lot of mucositis, uh, and a lot of graft-versus-host disease. And what has changed over time is that we're using non-myeloablative regimens so that we don't have a completely neutropenic host. So the period of the recovery of counts and the period of neutropenia, which used to be weeks, is now shorter. Can be 10 days, can be two weeks. Obviously, there are individuals where it's three or four months. They're at one extreme of the spectrum, but certainly less. And overall, we see fewer complications. So on the same diagram, we don't see the mucositis and neutropenia as much. We don't see as much chemotoxicity in the veno-occlusive disease and the diffuse alveolar hemorrhage that we used to see. But the reality is we do see longer periods of acute and chronic graft versus host disease. But this is clearly a step forward in terms of the treatment. Why do we do these timelines? Well, it allows you to write a lot of review papers. But other than that, it allows you to think a little bit when somebody walks into your office or comes into the emergency room, what do they have? 
what's the differential diagnosis of the likely things? So you don't have to get 450 different tests. It allowed us, as I mentioned, to develop prophylactic strategies and to identify epidemiologic hazards both in the community, so as I mentioned, our patients get influenza earlier, or in your hospital or in a specific unit. So if you're seeing surgical patients or transplant patients who all of a sudden have one or two or three cases of aspergillus, you start to recognize that you have a problem that can be evaluated and may just require some maintenance in your hospital environment. Of course, it also allows you to identify individual epidemiologic factors. We're doing so well, and my patients tend to shit up, set up gardening shops. I'm not quite sure why. They like to go out digging. Uh, it used to be that they raised pigeons in the north end of Boston. Um, so everyone had cryptococcus. But the reality is you will know uh, what your patients have uh, and what they're doing by what their epidemiologic exposures are. If as a program you're seeing too many infections, too many people coming back, it suggests that you're using too much immune suppression or too little prophylaxis. And this is an opportunity to adjust your regimen. So overall, greater difficulty in diagnosis, advanced or disseminated infection, toxicity of drugs, particularly the calcineurin inhibitors, and particularly drug interactions via the P450 system. So think azole antifungals, calcineurin inhibitors, rifamp and rifabutin, your cardiac rhythm drugs, any of those that go through the P450 system are likely to talk to each other. The intensity of immune suppression is a critical element, so we often need to reduce it to treat our patients. And infection is going to be a risk factor for graft rejection. Okay, so what do you do when a transplant recipient comes in with an infectious syndrome? Well, the solid organ uh, system is driven primarily by technical issues, graft injury, drug toxicities and interactions, and their various immune and metabolic defects. So let's go back to the timeline and think a little bit together about the types of things you're likely to see at various times after transplantation. So as I've mentioned, there's infection carried with the donor cells or organs, a donor-derived infection. Infections present in the recipient prior to transplants. So certainly things like strongyloides, but more often it's colonization. Your cystic fibrosis patient who's colonized with pseudomonas. Your patient who had C. difficile colitis before they went to transplant and the like. Technical complications. Think about what we do to these patients. We take chronically metabolically deranged patients. We put them through a major technically difficult surgical procedure. And then we make sure to give them drugs to make sure they don't heal so very well. And then we're very surprised when things don't go quite so well. So technical issues, often a problem. And then post-operative complications, aspiration pneumonia, uh, deep vein thrombosis and the like, are all very prominent in this patient population. What predisposes to early infection? Well, too much immune suppression, a patient too sick going into transplant, a patient who spends too long in the intensive care unit, all the things you're familiar with. And certainly those who have a bad technical performance where you have leaks or other issues, graft dysfunction early after transplantation. <coughs> 
So this is a 46-year-old man who came in uh, after a heart transplant, came into our emergency room and died within 48 hours. And on autopsy, you see a candida abscess sitting in his pleura. And this is the reason why he died. Now, I would refer to this as physician error. This is somebody who had their central venous line left in too long during their hospitalization, developed candida endocarditis, and it has this candida fungus ball sitting in his mitral valve. So think about getting lines and catheters out. Aspergillus fumigatus infection of a tracheal anastomosis. This is a, a slide that I love to show uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, this young woman uh, had a double lung transplant. And you see here at the arrow, this is the anastomosis there, and that's the suture line. And all of this shiny material there is aspergillus uh, fumigatus. And so this is to point out that it is the anastomotic sites, the suture lines, the devitalized tissue that tend to get infected. I also show this slide because this patient is still alive now 20 years later because these lungs were taken out. She was given antifungal therapy. At the same time, the lungs were re-implanted, and she still lives today. So that you can deal with this, but if you don't work closely with your surgical colleagues, you don't have a chance. Donor-derived infection, I won't belabor it other than to say we have issues uh, with false positive assays as well as superb assays that help us with these diagnoses. In the period one to six months following transplantation, the main drivers for infection are our viral infections. It used to be primarily cytomegalovirus. We have some ways of dealing with CMV now. Certainly, Epstein-Barr virus-mediated post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, herpes simplex, varicella zoster, the hepatitis viruses, and BK polyomavirus causing nephropathy. There certainly are residual problems. We start seeing the classic opportunistic infections, such as pneumocystis and toxo. Depending on where you live, endemic and geographic pathogens, such as histoplasmosis, coccidioides, and ubiquitous pathogens, as I've mentioned, like aspergillus and nocardia, and certainly cryptococcus. Another example, three months after renal transplant in a patient who wasn't taking prophylaxis, so trimethoprim sulfa-allergic patient. So diffuse bilateral pulmonary infiltrates in somebody who's hypoxic, and most anybody would say, this is pneumocystis pneumonia. This is the silver stain. Two points to make here. So this is the alveolar space. The silver stain stains only 5% of the organisms approximately that are the cyst form. So all of the rest of this material is trophozoites and macrophages that you don't see. And that's the, what produces the hypoxic response. The other point to make is that this person didn't respond to antineumocystis therapy. Why is that? Well. Once we figured out that this individual also had simultaneous cytomegalovirus, and for those of you who are going to take ID boards, this picture appears every year. Um, sorry, it's my picture. Um, but once we treated both the cytomegalovirus and the pneumocystis, the patient did fine. So there's this synergy between the viral infection and other opportunistic infections that you should come to expect, and all of the viruses have similar effects. What do I mean? Well, viruses all produce clinical syndromes. We know that. Influenza causes pneumonia. 
hepatitis viruses cause hepatitis and the like, and CMV is no different. They also have local and systemic immunomodulatory effects. That is that most of them can provoke graft rejection, but also predispose to subsequent opportunistic infections. So the person with influenza doesn't just have boggy lungs, but actually has dysregulation of the local immune system in their lung that predisposes to the Staph aureus infections and other infections that we expect in the post-viral period. Our patients are just more susceptible to that than others because of the exogenous immune suppression. So think viral infection in general predisposing to graft rejection or opportunistic infection. And those are considered the indirect effects of viral infection. And then many of these viruses also have cellular pro proliferation or oncogenic effects that we have come to expect. So. Epstein-Barr virus associated with PTLD or hepatitis B associated with hepatocellular carcinoma. So those linkages are true in all of the immunocompromised hosts. It's also true that we activate viruses in many ways, including that those T cell depleting agents that I mentioned earlier, but also stress catechols and pro-inflammatory cytokines, anything that gives you fever, activation of tumor necrosis factor, activates nuclear factor kappa B, which binds to a promoter region in CMV and causes CMV replication. So fever, stress, T cell depletion, you should expect viral activation. Bob Rubin and I put this together a number of years ago in terms of a way of thinking about the direct and indirect effects. So you have these CMV syndromes, the main one being fever and neutropenia, but certainly colitis and carditis and retinitis, as well as the allograft injury and graft rejection, as well as upregulation of other opportunistic infections as systemic immune responses. Two examples of CMV infection, CMV retinitis in a lung transplant recipient and CMV ulceration of the colon. I show you these two examples because our assays often fail us. In the central nervous system, in the colon, we may need other diagnostic tools because our peripheral blood <coughs> assays may be positive, but they may also be negative in the setting of advanced disease. So think more invasive disease and perhaps the assays not quite as good. What does CMV do? Well, the immune effects or indirect effects this are legion, lots of mechanisms. The short version is up increased adhesion molecules, increased cytokines, increased anti-endothelial antibodies, think graft rejection in the solid organ arena, decreased antigen presentations, so think opportunistic infections and decreased lymphocyte mobilization. And what we see is more pneumocystis, more candida, more aspergillus, more aggressive hepatitis, and other infections routinely in our CMV infections. Do we know how to prevent CMV infection? A concept that might be worth taking home. Universal prophylaxis. All of our patients get some drug based on risk criteria for prophylaxis. Think pneumocystis prophylaxis with trimethoprim sulfa. We give it to everybody. Um, to prevent the 10 to 15 percent that would get it if we didn't get prophylaxis. Preemptive therapy is really something that's grown out of our modern molecular era, a sensitive diagnostic test that when it turns positive, 
we treat those individuals. And there are advocates and non-advocates for both therapies, particularly surrounding the cytomegalovirus. But both therapies are used both nationally and internationally uh, in various subgroups of patients. In preemptive therapy, you have to think low-level infection. That's what you're detecting. In universal therapy, you're thinking they won't have this low-level infection, so they may not develop immunity during the course of prophylaxis. So there are advantages and disadvantages to each. In a meta-analysis, both are useful for preventing invasive disease, including in the highest risk donor positive recipient negative risk group. There is clearly a benefit of universal anti-CMP prophylaxis in terms of the other effects, those indirect effects, the opportunistic infections, the pneumocystis, et cetera. So there is that, and it probably has some morbidity, mortality benefit as a result of that. But certainly, if you're thinking about cost, if you're thinking about stratifying your patients, you might say that in certain low-risk populations, I don't need to use valgancyclovir for the prevention of cytomegalovirus in everybody. Prevents, reduces cost, reduces the number of neutropenic individuals and the like. It is a balance that you need, a discussion you need to have. Certainly also in this period of one to six months, BK polyomavirus, again, something for which we monitor routinely to prevent BK nephropathy in our renal transplant population. One of the exciting things about our transplant patients is what we see are unusual syndromes. So I've had BK infection of a arm muscle in a uh, stem cell patient recipient. And so just to think about the fact from an old editorial of mine that BK and JC virus, although we think of JC causing PML in the brain and JC causing infection of the kidney, really the receptors are ubiquitous. And therefore, unusual syndromes are the rule in these immunosuppressed patients, not necessarily the exception. Okay, just to finish up, our patients are generally doing well six to 12 months after transplantation, gradual reductions in immune suppression. They will have greater severity of community-acquired infections, but 90-plus percent are doing quite well. A few, say 5%, will now have some chronic viral infections. Hepatitis C is now finally coming under control to some extent, but papillomavirus, anal genital cancers, screening remains important, BK nephropathy, uh, C. difficile colitis and the like. Then there's that 1%, the chronic ne'er-do-wells. They came into the hospital, their IV infiltrated, the graft didn't work quite so well, you gave them a little more immune suppression than general because the graft never seems to work quite so well. These are the individuals who, for one reason or another, remain chronically at risk for more opportunistic infections. And this is my favorite patient. So at the time you see him here, he's had central nervous system aspergillosis. He's had cytomegalovirus infection twice. He's had a ruptured appendix. He had a staphylococcus aureus empyema. But now he's fine. He's on his way actually to Maine to go on vacation with his family. He stops by for his clinic visit. And he has on his arm, I apologize to the dermatologist in the group, a ditzel. Um, 
and I didn't, I missed that class. The, um, and just to make this very long story shorter, this is his cerebrospinal fluid. This is nocardiasteroides, an unspun specimen. He's completely asymptomatic. His immune system isn't telling him anything is going on. Uh, and he did fine with this one as well, and he's still doing fine. But we've been tracking him now for 15 years. Uh, his kidney function is still great, but the rest of him doesn't seem to respond. This is also the individual in whom you should expect fungal infections, and therefore think funny bumps and bruises, black spots on the roof of their mouth and the like need to be biopsied. You need a specific diagnosis in these individuals to treat them optimally. So specific diagnosis remains the key. Individual fever and cough two years after cardiac transplant. You see the infiltrate nodule with a faint halo at onset. You see the halo, which is the area we can save. The central area is already, the nodule is already necrotic. Five days later, no response to antifungal therapy. Now, the fact that this uh, necrotic nodule cavitated doesn't worry me. What worries me is the cultures came back and he never had aspergillus in the first place. And therefore, if you don't get the biopsy, if you don't get the bronchoscopy and the like, you won't make a diagnosis in these individuals. And then you need to treat them aggressively with appropriate therapy. So. In summary, infections more difficult to diagnose, as I mentioned, advanced or disseminated at the time of diagnosis. Drug interactions, drug toxicities are fairly common, and the intensity of immune suppression, including anatomic defects, including lines and catheters, um, are major contributors. And so I will stop there. I'd be happy to answer any questions. And thanks very much for inviting me back up here. Thank you. So um, I think you're exactly right. And so what's being referred to is if you manage patients in the community, they go home, they have an assay that may be done outside of your healthcare system. So you may not get those results quickly or if at all. Then you need somebody to follow those results. You need to call the patient and you need to track them. And so those logistics may be a problem which you are difficult to manage. On the flip side, if you give everybody um, antiviral prophylaxis, you're going to deal with a certain amount of neutropenia, a certain amount of toxicity, and cost. And so what I think the, uh, there's a balance for any system. And so one of the 
things that really advocate for a universal, if you will, data system for patients, which of course we're never going to have, but a universal data system, we don't even have it internal partners yet, um, is that you would get notifications about all of these things. And so it would allow you to do the patient stratification based on risk, and you say certain patients I could use preemptive therapy, and others would get universal therapy. That would be the goal. But what you're saying is right. And we, back in the good old days, and again, Cyclovir was the only agent which had a 4% oral bioavailability, we gave everybody drug because we had no way of getting patients back. We had no assets. Um, so it depends on your system. In European systems, I have to say, they deal with this all the time, and they love preemptive therapy. So uh, it's a question of coordination, though. It's, it's not facile, that's for sure. What you're saying is exactly right. One of the issues with our VMT patients that's more sort of more nebulous and elusive is this, the concept of immune reconstitution after transplant. So our patients are forever saying, my counts are normal. What's the big deal? You know, why you know, can I roll around in the mud and dig in the garden and things like that? And uh, I was just curious. You know, we emphasize that we, we don't check CD4 levels at points after transplant. We assume that they're going to be down for two years or so until um, they recover. Anything in particular that you do, either as a center, um, to to check or or in ways that you uh, uh, remind your patients continually that that's an issue. Well, so none of our patients do well with reminders. Uh, they all roll in the mud and open flower shops and various other things. Um, I think that the answer there is we have to is back before the transplant. I think what we ought to be doing is thinking about vaccines to the degree we can in the donors. Uh, in the recipients, because we're using non-myeloablative systems now, um, the question is how much can we prep and then think about very limited prophylaxis, um, because I know we're starting to select for more antimicrobial resistance in our population as well. I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do. And of course, we have all these various immune reconstitution syndromes that we misinterpret as infection, and we have all the infections as well. Um, I don't know exactly what we can do better than that. We can't keep our patients from working, from traveling, from seeing grandchildren, which seems to be the biggest bane in the universe, um, those kinds of things. And so I don't think we should bother trying in many ways. I think we tell them about hand washing. I think it's patterns of living. It's vaccination on a regular basis. One of the things that doesn't exist are good data that say, if we did a battery of T-cell studies, can we actually look at what's reconstituted in certain individuals and what's not, and what the, the gaps are in their immune repertoire? We don't do those studies. They should be done. It would be a very nice translational study to think about uh, in terms of, because we don't make a diagnosis. If patients are febrile and neutropenic, we make a diagnosis in way less than 50%. We have lots of fevers. We always say, oh, it's endotoxin from the gut. We have no idea what we're talking about, but it sounds really good. Um, I think the, the reality is we need to do a better job up front and then better maintenance in terms of vaccines and the like, and then think of ways to identify patients who are at greater risk uh, and maybe apply some barriers to those and let the rest uh, live their lives. It's not very helpful. Sorry. Next time. We had a couple of patients um, move into our area from other cardiac transplant centers, um, and it's 
come to our attention that there seem to be differing guidelines about dental prophylaxis. So what is your feeling about that? We, um, so you want what I actually do? or the, um, We use the AHA guidelines. Um, and so uh, I have to say, I was one of those people who gave prophylaxis to everybody for everything. And I've actually never seen um, in somebody who's gotten AHA prophylaxis, I've never seen a complication. Does that mean there are individuals don't, that don't fall into that? Yeah, the, the person whose white cells never quite came back or who's on remains on steroids for one reason or another, I tend to be more aggressive. I don't know, Helen may have others and Ajit may have other uh, guidelines, but generally, we've pretty much restricted to that and use their guidelines, including do they have normal splenic function or the hypogammaglobulinemic. Hypogammaglobulinemia is one of the things we miss routinely, and those people are at increased risk for bacterial infections. So it's worth maybe once just finding out if their regimen has put them at risk, and then I upgrade the prophylaxis. Otherwise, I'm using AHA guidelines. Oh, so I was just I was going to ask. Sorry. Go ahead. Take one more question. Just uh, follow up Dr. Hill's question about T cell repertoire. Uh, surely spectrotyping has been done, and do they re ever normalize or become normal or in the normal range? So um, they, the the studies have not been done in a terribly broad way. In individuals where they have looked, it turns out there are generally gaps in their immune repertoire. So there are certain viruses that are not covered. There are certain pathogens that are not covered. But in general, it's not just a question of time. It's a question of who your donor it was and who you've, and which of their cells you've reconstituted. So you're not going to develop new specificities. So if we're using a non-myeloablative regimen. Um, it depends, of course, on whose cells you end up with. So if you end up all donor, you're going to end up with the donor's repertoire. If you end up all recipient, you're going to end up with the recipient's repertoire, which is, of course, not what we're looking for. Um, but those studies have not, to my knowledge, now I may be wrong, have not been done in a routine way on a large population. Uh, on average, uh, as you know, immune function comes back in about a year, um, but it's, not, it's still incomplete. And that's why I would try to vaccinate to try to generate some low level of specificity against some important pathogens. So just before we finish medical grand rounds and this part of today's uh, transplant conference, I wanted to do two things. One was to our inaugural culinary medicine program, which started this morning at 7.30, and will be part of grand rounds every Friday at 7.30. For those who would join us for that, it was a combination of activities from the planning and planner at the Wellness Center, and folks who were uh, very involved with that, Autumn McClure and Karen Hike along with our cafeteria staff today, some local ingredients to produce what was out there for you. There will be an ongoing curriculum for that, and I just call your attention to it and encourage you to arrive early before medical grand rounds to take advantage of the education and work that's going to go on with that. Second, I want to thank Rich for putting this symposium together today, and Jay for coming up here. Thanks for being a part of it. Thank you so much. <laughs>